the epistle lesson for today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. You'll find that on page 1203 of your pew Bible. The Christian life is a life of hope based on the foundation of our redemption through Christ's death and resurrection. Knowing the grace that has been given to us in love, we are called to a life of love for God and for one another. Here then is a reading from 1 Peter, beginning with verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. I want you to picture somebody in your mind's eye. This is somebody that others would describe as holier than thou. Can you picture somebody like that? Or maybe others describe this person as a holy roller. Picture the person in your mind. Now, here's a question for you. Is that person somebody you're eager to hang out with? Or here's another question. How much good is that person in a moment of real crisis? See, I grew up thinking that holiness, which God calls us to in this scripture and others, looked like, maybe like what the Pharisees looked like in Jesus' time. Kind of aloof, kind of detached, holier than thou. But I'm realizing as I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 1 that I was all wrong, that holiness doesn't often look like we think it should look. Holiness doesn't act like we think it would act. In our scripture today, God says to us, be holy. But our world right now does not need us to be holier than thou. 
Our broken world does not need more holy rollers. No. Our world needs the kind of holiness that 1 Peter is describing. So let's look at it together to find out what exactly God is calling us to for such a time as this. The first thing we have to know about holiness, this command to be holy, is that it actually doesn't even start with us. In fact, holiness isn't even ultimately about us. It starts with the work of holy God, something that he's done for us. Look with me at verse 18. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed. Before we can even begin thinking about what holiness looks like in our life, we have to first see this move of God that he has ransomed us. What is a ransom? A ransom is the price paid to free somebody from their captivity. Somebody's being held prisoner and the captors demand a ransom price. Somebody has to pay the price to release this person. The Bible says that we have been ransomed. We were ransomed from our captivity to sin, sin that binds us, sin whose consequences are eternal. They're forever. They keep us separated from God. It's an eternal prison that we are in because of sin. But the Bible says that God came along in the person of Jesus Christ and said, I'll pay the price necessary to ransom them, to free them from that captivity. How much would it cost? How much is it worth? How much gold? would it take to ransom you? Well, the Bible says, no, no, no. It's something far more valuable than that. Not something perishable like silver or gold. And all the silver in the world wouldn't be costly enough. All the gold in the world wouldn't be costly enough. Rather, he paid the ransom price with his precious blood. The most valuable resource in the entire universe. The blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, person in the Godhead, the one who was at the beginning, the one who will be revealed in the end and the culmination of all things. Jesus, high and lifted up, the name that is above all names. When he saw us in our captivity to sin, he said, I will die in their place. I will take the consequences of their sin. And his blood was spilled to ransom us. His perfect, innocent, holy blood. So our holiness begins with that primary act, that we have been ransomed. Now, why is that important? And you might be wondering, why are we studying 1 Peter when we're in this journey through the wilderness with the Israelites going through Numbers and Exodus and all these things? Well, I just couldn't preach Numbers one more Sunday. I was just too tired of it. (laughs) No, I'm teasing. At the end of every month, we're trying to give a New Testament read on some of these big, long Old Testament narratives. And First Peter tells us that that story that's happening, that we're going through of the Old Testament, the Israelites coming out of their captivity, being set free from their captivity and brought out into the wilderness before they get to the promised land, that story, according to First Peter, is a lot like our story. 
We were captive like they were, not to the Egyptians, but we were enslaved to our sin, yet we've been set free. Jesus has paid the price necessary for our freedom. Now, stick with me in the wilderness for just a moment. The Israelites, they all went out into the wilderness as a group. They went through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. But they were out there for so long that the entire generation of people who left Egypt, the people who were slaves, they all died. They had kids when they were out there before they died. And the kids' generation is the one that entered into the promised land. Totally different group of people who left captivity than who entered the promised land. According to 1 Peter, That's the same with us. There's a new birth. There's a new generation. There's a new person that comes in us when we are ransomed by Jesus Christ. Verse 23 puts it this way. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. There's a new eternal you that gets birthed through the ransom process, through the gospel, through what happened for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like a whole new generation entered the promised land, there's a new you. It's not a makeover. It's a new rebirthed us that lives now. And why is this important when we consider our holiness? It's because we have a new identity. We're not like we were before. The new generation of people that grew up in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, wouldn't it be a little bit strange if one of those kids who never lived in captivity in Egypt, if they started acting like a slave might act? You would look at that and you would say, you're, you're not a slave. You're no longer a slave. There's, you're new. You've been given a whole new identity. You've been ransomed. You've been set free. Now act like a free person. In the same way, our holiness is instructed by this same thing. The old you, the you that was captive to sin, that was um, determined to go to hell for all of eternity because of your sin, that's no longer affecting you. That's no longer influencing you. It's a new you. It's a new identity. Act accordingly. You know who Matthew Stafford is? Anyone Matthew Stafford? Yeah. Quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. He just won the Super Bowl. It's still strange for me to see him in the Rams uniform because I'm from Michigan and he played for seven seasons for the Detroit Lions. It's hard for me to see Matthew Stafford without seeing that silver and blue uniform of the poor hapless Lions. (laughs) Now, wouldn't it be strange if you saw Matthew Stafford show up for a game in his Lions uniform? You'd say, Matthew, you're no longer a lion. You're a ram now. You're a Super Bowl winning champion of the Los Angeles Rams. Get the lion's uniform out of here. In the same way, God has given us a new person, a new self. He's planted something in us because of the gospel that will last unto eternity. He's planted something in us that is holy. We're like a Super Bowl champion now. So we don't need to put on the old uniform. We can live accordingly. We can live in a holy way. That verse in 24 and 25, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word meaning the gospel that's been planted in our hearts. It's new and it will last unto eternity. The holiness that God calls us to begins with his redeeming, his ransoming work. And then the holy seed that he plants in us that will spring up into eternal life. So don't think that holiness begins with our own white-knuckling approach to try to get it right, to try to be holier than thou. No, it begins with God. 
Okay, so what does it look like? What are we set apart? What are we made holy for? Well, there's some interesting images in, in the scripture that begin to paint the picture for what our holy lives might look like in this world. Verse 13 begins to describe it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action. Now, that's an English translation of a Greek phrase. And the Greek phrase more literally is translated, gird up the loins of your mind. You can see why they translated it this way. It really says, gird up the loins of your mind, is really what it says in Greek. Now, how does this instruct us of how to live in a holy way? You remember how I had this picture a few minutes ago, a person who's holier than thou? I'm picturing it in that sense, like maybe one of the Pharisees. I just want to show you what these guys would have looked like. In Bible times, men wore robes all the way from their neck down to their ankles. It seems kind of strange to us now, but men wore robes. And uh, they were really into these robes, actually. And the more esteemed you were in the community, the better your robe looked. It, looked, it was always very clean and neat and pressed. They called it a robe of righteousness. And they believed that the more righteous you were, the more obedient you were to God's law, the more he would bless you with material provision. So you'd have a really nice-looking robe, and you would never have to get it dirty, and you would never have to gird it because you had people to do that for you. You could afford people. If there was trouble coming your way, you had security guys, and they could gird their loins and go get the attackers for you. If you had some yard work to do, you would never get your righteous robe dirty. You would let your people do that. You're not going to see Jeff Bezos pushing a wheelbarrow in his front yard with work boots and work gloves on, right? He's got people to do that for him. In the Bible times, men would have people. But First Peter says, you want to be holy. Don't be like the Pharisees who walk around with their clean, righteous robes. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Now, to gird up your loins, it's kind of silly. They would take the bottom of their, of their robe, and they would pull it up, and they would create these kind of wings, and they would take those wings and, and tie it together between their legs. Can you picture that? Can you picture me in that? It looks kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? It almost looked like a big diaper, honestly. And then their legs were exposed. I'm trying to show you how ridiculous it would look to gird up your loins. You would lose some of that social standing. You wouldn't look nearly as righteous and holy as you did a moment ago. You would look a little silly. You would maybe lose how good you looked on social media. I mean, in the community for a moment. God is saying, you want to be holy... Don't think holier than thou. Don't think aloof, set apart, untouchable. No, gird up the loins of your mind. Why? Because action is needed in this world. Battles are happening in this world. People need to be loved and served in this world. And we're not going to do any good if we're standing there in our robes of righteousness. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. It might cost us a little bit. It might cost us a little bit of that social standing. We might not look as good in the community, but it means getting down and dirty. Girding up the loins for action, it says. It goes on in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. On Friday, I was studying this passage at the Pivot House in Bridgeport. And I just love doing Bible study with those guys. It's just so real and raw and honest. And we were talking about this phrase, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And some of the guys were talking about their years of addiction, drugs and alcohol and crime. And I said, I said to the guys, how would you describe, like if you could sum up this phrase, the passions of your former ignorance, what would you say? And one guy said, basically, it was all about me. It was all about me. Total selfishness. You know, for a pivot guy, it's easier to see like a before picture and an after picture. You know, the passions of your former ignorance. For those of us who haven't gone through that process of addiction recovery, it might be harder for us to think, what parts of my life are just all about me now? God is saying, don't be conformed to that. Don't let your mind be set on selfism. But rather, gird up your loins so that you can serve, so that you can fight the battle, so that you can love earnestly the people around you. It's not really about you. Holiness isn't. It's about loving God and serving others. That's holiness. It doesn't necessarily look like we thought it might have looked. The guy with his loins girded up, ready for action, ready for battle, might not have looked holy in someone's mind. There's another image in Scripture, there's another metaphor in Scripture that might be helpful. Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet. Picture beautiful feet. But, but beauty, just like holiness, might look a little bit different than we think it would. Picture feet that have gone across the mountains to bring good news, to serve the world by bringing the gospel. Those feet that have come across a mountain, well, they might look like this, actually. You know, we might look at that and say, how ugly. But God looks at that and says, how beautiful. We might look at a man with his loins girded up and think, how silly. And God says, there's holiness. There's engagement. There's mission. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Dirty from travel. Dirty feet, maybe dirty hands from the engagement with the world around us. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I thought holiness was about purity. This doesn't look very pure. Isn't holiness purity? Did anyone have a sign in the kitchen when you were growing up that said, cleanliness is next to godliness? Anybody have that? Cleanliness is next. We didn't have that in my house, but we kind of lived by that. You know, squeaky clean. My mom cleans everything so much to this day. She literally cleans the walls all around the house. She comes around and cleans things. Cleanliness. The clean, isn't holiness like that? Cleanliness is next to holiness. This doesn't seem very holy. This doesn't seem very beautiful. There's instruction here on where the cleanliness lies when we live these holy lives, reflective of the holy work that God has done in us. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Purify your souls and have a pure heart. So here's the picture I'm getting about holiness from 1 Peter. Pure hearts, dirty feet. Pure souls, calloused hands from serving. See? Now, it doesn't have to be so literal. Maybe you don't have any dirty shoes out there and you're feeling unholy now. Sometimes it's, it's more metaphorical. I'm thinking of my older brother, Paul, who um, he has this, this holy way in the biblical sense of entering into the mess, usually the mess of relationships. When there's a crisis, when there's a, somebody who's gone off the rails, when there's someone who's acting like an idiot, and everyone else wants to kind of disengage, my brother's picking up the phone. He's knocking on your door. He's entering in. He's engaging. He's got those dirty feet, those holy, dirty feet of doing the hard work. Did you notice this phrase? Love one another earnestly. You know, I see Christians earnest about a lot of things right now. I'd like to see more earnest love. Engaging with, entering into the messes of this world. It needs our love so much. I've been speaking in individual terms, you know, what it looks like to live in a holy way. But really, this book was written to the collective. It was written to Christians. It's written in the plural. The beginning of Peter, he writes this letter to the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. He hoped this letter would get distributed to all the Christians in the empire. So we might wonder, what does this holiness look like for us collectively? Well, I would first say what it's not saying. A few of you forwarded me this article a couple weeks ago, thought I might be interested in it. It says, Americans are fleeing to places where political views match their own. Did you see this article? It's called The Great Sorting. Here's a picture of a nice family. These ones are liberals, and they're moving to a blue state. Um, There's another family here. These are conservatives, and they're moving to North Texas. And, um, you know, we might think maybe they have something right. Maybe that's holiness. The word holy just means set apart. Maybe we should be doing what they're doing and just going to places where there's people like us to have a set-apart life, a holy life. But that's actually not what the Bible's calling us to here. That's not girding up our loins. That's standing in those robes of righteousness apart from the engagement God is calling us into in this world. Now, verse 17 gives us instruction on the collective, how we are to operate in this broken world collectively as Christians. It's not to flee like birds of a feather flocking together. Rather, it says this in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I got to slow down on a couple of these words so we can be instructed by God's word. Conduct yourselves with fear. If you just read that plainly, you might think, okay, so we're supposed to be afraid. There's a lot of stuff going on in this world. Let's just live in fear of all the terrible things. That's not really what this is saying. When the Bible says, 
fear, it sometimes is talking about the fear of God. And when we have the fear of God, there's nothing else to fear in this world. We can act fearlessly. There's a scene in the Gospels when Jesus brings his disciples onto the boat with him to cross the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as they get on the boat, this terrible storm comes up, this furious squall. And it says the disciples are afraid. They're afraid of the wind and they're afraid of the waves. They're totally afraid of the circumstance, and rightly so. But then Jesus wakes up from his nap and he stands up and he looks at the wind and the waves and he rebukes them. And suddenly they calm down and there is peace. And now a whole new fear comes over the disciples. They suddenly look at who they're in the boat with. And it says something very interesting. It says they feared him. You see, when you realize that Jesus is in the boat with you and he has authority over all things, Heather prayed it in her pastoral prayer a moment ago, he's got the whole world in his hands. Suddenly, all the circumstances, all the situations, all the wind, all the waves that we were afraid of before don't look so scary because he has authority over all those things. So when we fear God, when we fear Jesus, and we know that he's in the boat with us, we can say, I can act fearlessly now in this world. I can love fearlessly. I can engage. I can fight. I can serve in this world, not motivated by fear, but knowing that I'm with Jesus. Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of what? During the time of your exile. You know that we're exiles here? You know what that means? An exile is somebody who lives in a country that's not their own. That's the basic definition of an exile. The original readers of 1 Peter, they would have understood this pretty well. They lived in what we call a pre-Christian culture. It was the Roman Empire. And half their neighbors would have been pagans, just worshiping the basic, the the various gods of Greek and Roman mythology. And the other half of their neighbors would have basically worshiped the empire. They would have worshiped Caesar. In fact, they were like nationalists in a sense. Their religion had become their nation. So half their neighbors were pagans. The other half were nationalists, and yet they believed in Jesus Christ, and they were called to be holy. They were called to gird up the loins of their minds for action, to get dirty feet, pure hearts, dirty hands and feet, to engage, to love earnestly, and to serve the people around them. Not motivated by fear, but motivated by this call to be holy, to love and to engage. Now we live in what historians are calling a post-Christian culture. For quite a few decades there, we enjoyed, Christians enjoyed, the seat of power, the seat of cultural influence. Now that's changing, isn't it? And it feels kind of scary to those of us who are Christ followers. But we're in the boat with Jesus. And it actually places us right where the people were in the pre-Christian century, centuries, in which the Bible was written. So the instruction for them is the same for us. To gird up our loins. To engage. You know, it's been so inspiring watching some of these Ukrainians, hasn't it? Who are just sticking, that, sticking it out and they're choosing to engage. Some of them are fleeing. I totally understand that. But some of them are saying, this is our land and we're going to engage this enemy coming in. Hasn't that been inspiring? This Zelensky guy is a stud. 
I think there's something in their example for us Christians. It feels like the enemy is encroaching on our territory, not in a physical way, in a spiritual way. Our culture is changing so fast. And we could be like these folks and just rush off to our enclave, our holy cloister. But that's not what First Peter is calling us to do. He's calling us to engage, to love earnestly, to love fearlessly, to serve, to get our feet dirty. I am so blessed and impressed to be a part of a church that's moving into the city when a lot of people are running out of it. We're engaging the battle in Stanford. I see people who've been working so hard on this project around this room with dirty feet, calloused hands, pure hearts. That's holiness. And it's our call and our world needs us to live out this identity that he's given us, this new identity afforded to us by the ransom price he paid and living in us as that imperishable seed which will last unto eternity. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Amen.